I'm delighted to welcome for this afternoon's uh, seminar Ishmael Inashi, who uh, is going to be talking to us about the difference that new media is making to uh, reporting Africa. Ishmael's a freelance journalist who's reported from uh, uh, many parts of Africa for the BBC, The Guardian, and uh, a number of other uh, news outlets. Um, he's uh, uh, spoken a number of times, I think the Frontline Club was uh, one where John Lloyd spotted you and thought you'd be uh, excellent to come and talk to us here, so I'm delighted that you agreed and are here today, Ishmael. So, over to you. Thank you so much. I'm going to stand, because it sort of helps the blood go, go in. Um, so, um, I'm so delighted to be here. It's a real privilege. Um, uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, thanks to James, uh, and also thanks to John Lloyd. It's how I've got this uh, opportunity, which I'm really delighted to be able to execute. So, my seminar is... Looking at how new media, as it says on the, on the slide, uh, changing African journalism. And I think as I go through the presentation, you'll see there's obviously lots of commonalities and experiences that you can all relate to as journalists, uh, citizen journalists or audiences. Right. So I'll be looking at the impact of new media on African journalism. Uh, new media is a, obviously a catch-all term, but in this instance I refer to social media, uh, Web 2.0, and especially on mobile technology, which I will say a little bit more about in the context of Africa, is very significant. So, new communication technology, easily accessible online publishing tools, uh, social media, smartphone uh, e-platforms are increasingly changing uh, how journalism is done in Africa. But... The key technology in the continent is mobile. So the power of the digital age uh, to transform a continent's fortune. Um, what I mean by that point is, I think, before I get going, is to really uh, underscore how significant technology is in the continent because it isn't just a marketing tool, it isn't just a tool for journalists to uh, use it on Twitter, but actually it has real-world applications. So, for example, there are apps developed where uh, people in rural areas on the continent can uh, find information about um, um, medicine and can find tools and resources to be able to combat challenges they're facing. But um, the focus I'm going to have in the presentation when I, when I say Africa is on sub-Saharan Africa. Now, don't get me started because there's a big discussion. Um, Africa is obviously the whole continent of Africa, but in this discussion, I'll be talking about the countries in sub-Saharan Africa and picking examples um, 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 where me media is having an impact, uh, negatively or positively. In terms of the last, perhaps, sort of decade, um, Africa has been slow on the uptake of new media, probably because of the lack of smartphone penetration. As I've said, mobile phone penetration is key in the continent. But over the last year, uh, three years, this has been uh, in increasing um, in abundance across the continent. But news agenda is still set in Western newsrooms, and most news about Africa is still written by foreign correspondents. So I'll just pick to a quote from Simon Allison, who's a South African journalist who I admire, I think is great. And uh, he was writing here in Good Governance Africa in 2013, and he says in the quote, uh, in the overwhelming majority of newspapers across the continent, news about the rest of Africa comes via the usual sources, principally Reuters, the Associated Press, AFP, and the BBC. It doesn't matter if you are reading South Africa's The Star in Johannesburg, Ghana's Daily Graphic in Accra, or the Gambia's Daily Observer in Banjul, the African 
section will be cut and paste job from Western news sources writing for Western audiences. And this was written in 2013, as if to prove the point. A few weeks back, um, when I returned back to London uh, for my holiday, I was reading um, The uh, Independent, and then later, I think, The Telegraph, and I noted there was a news piece um, about al-Shabaab in Somalia, and it was from the same journalist based in Kenya. Then when I went online, I also found basically the same story in another uh, Western newspaper in Australia. So that phenomenon continues. But the changing coverage um, of the continent is not just the sole responsibility of Western journalists, and I will come to discuss the role of Western journalists and journalism in Africa historically and uh, contemporarily uh, a bit later. Um, so I've just picked an example from a journalist, Yassine Mugarwa. Um, I think I pronounced it right, I hope. Uh, so he's the parliament reporter, the Daily Monitor, and he was writing in African Arguments in 2013, which is a... Um, a, um, a um, blog by the Royal African Society that I also contribute to. Um, so he says, um, as a Ugandan journalist, I believe that it isn't just Western media outlets that have a responsibility for changing the, their coverage of Africa. African journalism must also improve its reporting of developments on the continent and become an authoritative and reliable source of information. This means holding politicians, businesses and societal stakeholders accountable for their failures, but also giving due credit for their successes. So it's about a balanced uh, narrative and coverage. Another important point, I think, is to look at the developments in terms of media broadly in the continent, is that there's been challenged the dominance of Western media in the continent. So we see the arrival of Iran's press TV, or China's CCTV, um, and again, I can't speak for CCTV, but I have been on press TV a number of times, and now I refuse to go on press TV because, well, often it's always a very well-spoken British person who calls you, ask you to be on their programme, which is um, the Africa Report. And I went on one of these programmes, and essentially they had set up the narrative. It was about the influence of Islamist militants in the continent, and um, they had a speaker from East Africa, I think it was from Kenya, and uh, a speaker from Somalia. And the speaker from Somalia, who's not a journalist, who um, was based in Britain, uh, was speaking in the studio, and essentially he was basically saying the Islamic courts union, which were uh, in Somalia uh, before, before 2006, um, were in fact a wonderful thing, and you know, it was like you know, living in a perfect dreamland. And they let him continue on this narrative, and in fact the presenter, completely set up the narrative, and they cut me off air, and it's just it's appalling. So, you know, um, I think you see the kind of quality and the kind of journalism that's coming. But the big point there is that the dominance of Western news media, that Simon's quote on the previous page was referring to the BBC and Reuters and so on, they are being challenged. Uh, and the other point about that is it's the politics that's driving this. So China's um, expansion in Africa is huge. Uh, now they maintain the Chinese um, um, uh, um, uh, broadcaster in Africa maintains their editorial independence from Beijing. Um, that's debatable. But um, nonetheless, what you see is China really increasing its kind of um, engagement on the continent. And of course, that comes to the back of a massive uh, growth of China's role in the continent, which is a completely separate topic. But uh, nonetheless, it matters to think about some of these shifts that are happening in journalism across the continent. The final point in the introductory part that I thought I'd make is African journalism has extra burdens. So when we think um, of the c conflict 
ridden kind of situation when we think of poverty, when we think of literacy, when we think of bandwidth. So there are a number of real world challenges that face African journalists and journalism and indeed Africans <coughs> in the continent. So what's the impact of new media? So I've picked up some themes um, from um, things that I have engaged with, reportage, uh, things that I've read and people I've spoken to. So one of the things that's really interesting, um, I was um, listening to a <coughs> podcast from, I think it was a journalism festival in Italy last year, where it's quite well-known uh, uh, um, journalist from Nigeria was speaking at, and I think it was him who coined this phrase. I think it was him, but... Uh, uh, I want to say one of the main things is that new media um, and its usage by Africans and by outsiders has uh, allowed sort of to challenge what's termed helicopter journalism. So it's essentially a derogatory term used to describe that reporting that lacks depth. Um, that can be said of many places in the world. But the reason in Africa it matters especially is because it's a response to usual tribe of how Africa is reported. So there's continual kind of accusation that the focus is always on the wars, it's always on the poverty, it's actually never on you know, reporting on the ground how the continent's changing and actually hearing from people on the continent. It's, in fact, it's been historically um, you know, bringing out these old tropes uh, about the continent. Um, and one of the ways in which new media um, uh, has challenged these kinds of historic narratives is that it's allowed Africans to tell their own stories. So that's one of the most powerful aspects of what new media has done. It's allowing Africans increasingly, those who have access to it, um, to tell their own stories, and those who don't have access to it, at least to be able to engage with what the content of those who have access to it say. So new media is also changing uh, the dynamic in the newsroom. Um, so it basically means that the way that journalists carry their job day to day has changed. Also, it means the level of engagement um, has changed. So, essentially, you know, in most of um, parts of Saharan Africa, historically, you had very centred kind of elites in cities and a huge kind of um, you know gap between the cities and the rural areas. And for a number of reasons, so infrastructure is just very poor in many parts of the continent. So, it's very difficult to travel. So, information flows are very difficult. But new media is allowing these rooms to be able to kind of tap in to reporters and to citizens and, and so on in far-flung parts of their particular country. New media and tech as a means to challenge traditional media. So again, that is another aspect of what new media is allowing African journalists to do, is to challenge old media. So it's allowing, whether that's um, you know, um, um, you know um, the Mail and Guardian in South Africa, for example, the Daily Monitor and so on, um, it's allowing traditional African media to be challenged, but also Western journalists. Uh, and traditional Western sort of uh, mainstream uh, media, such as BBC and so on. Um, another key aspect, I think, of the impact of new media on Africa is that it's democratising, and that's a broad theme, um, which could itself be a separate seminar, but that's a particular aspect of what I think uh, new media is doing in the continent. Um, and it's also challenging to censors and state authorities, so it's challenging to people, um, 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 who are in authority, who can control and manage um, um, news historically. But now, because of new media, people can bypass those kinds of traditional ways of controlling information in a given state. It's exposing corruption and challenging privilege. I'll come to some of those examples later of how these 
themes are actually happening in practice when I pick Kenya as a particular example. So, again, I've just picked uh, from Justin Arenstein, who's a brilliant South African journalist, um, and he made this point where he says, from hardware, so again, just underscores what I'm saying, from hardware, software, through to access to data, African journalism is changing dramatically. Um, another consequence is that increase, as I said before, is the increasing focus on local experts, so i.e. the gap between the urban and rural is closing, uh, the focus is shifting to photographers, to video journalists, to frontline reporting. So you've seen that much more than previously. Um, again, there's been a massive increase in the ability to reach far beyond newsroom. So that also is related to Western media. So that's been something that's been positive, I think, actually. But one of the challenges um, is that Justin Einstein discusses uh, in his writing on journalism is you know, how to do innovation in a low-tech environment. And Africa is, in large part, a low-tech environment. Um, so that's a particular challenge uh, facing a journalist in the continent. Uh, data journalism. So exploring these questions on SMS, um, there are a number of initiatives that I can go into, but there's an uh, initiative which has been supported by the Gates Foundation, for example, about data. Justin does ex- excellent work, and I recommend you to go and search him up and find out what he's working on. Um, There's also another aspect of how new media is changing things, is that one of the problems in the continent is that there's lack of digitisation of information. So public records, newspaper archives and so on aren't available online. Um, And that's a challenge to journalists to be able to uh, verify facts, um, look at records, uh, go back, I don't know, 50 years of the newspaper and to be able to look back what their colleagues have previously written. That just isn't available. But another theme that's happened um, is um, the decline of Western news media on the continent. Uh, for example, at one point, BBC had 30 journalists in Nigeria. This is from Mary Harper, uh, who's a former colleague of mine at the BBC, who I spoke to this morning, who told me that. Um, but now it's actually very few. Um, for example, the BBC has no journalist in Ethiopia. Uh, so this means mainstream media now relies much more on local journalists. And activists, for example, tweeting in a crisis. So when there's a big crisis, Ebola, uh, Burundi, so on, the focus is no longer on, for example, the BBC or Reuters. Uh, actually, Reuters is somewhat different, but BBC, say, um, um, having a local-based uh, reporter. Now, because of the lack of that um, uh, network, they focus much more on local um, journalists and activists uh, and this is how many journalists in the West pick up stories about Africa. This is how they get a picture of what's really happening. Um, you, for example, might read uh, pieces in The Independent, Telegraph, wherever else, about in Burundi um, or Burkina Faso, but it's probably likely most of those pieces are drawn, you know, AFP or Reuters perhaps, but the journalists who are writing those pieces have not been to those places. Um, and this is a problem because it makes news gathering to uh, one or two stages removed. Um, increasingly when big uh, news events happen. And a particular problem, and I don't think this is just an issue in Africa, is that when something really massive happens, they fly out the sort of big television-ready faces, people you know, who are the well-known kind of broadcasters and journalists within a particular media kind of institution. Um, and that means there's a gap, because people who go there don't know the local context. They don't know what's going on in that particular country. They don't have a history, understanding of that region. So that, again, is not a problem just in Africa. It's a problem, I think, in other parts of the world. 
So, lessons of the Arab Spring. Um, I mentioned Burundi um, um, and Burkina Faso um, just now, but I think new media, um, especially social media, is obviously, as you saw, was profound in the um, events of the Arab Spring. Um, and there is definitely a link between new media and revolution. Um, and we've seen, for example, that take place in Burkina Faso effectively. The president was deposed largely through Twitter, it seems. And events happened so fast uh, through social media. And people were able to follow the events very quickly. And there was a real sense that everybody in the country was engaging as the president was essentially, you know, after staying for too long, like many African leaders, um, essentially was, you know, told to sort of, you know, pick up, you know, your bags and get out. Um, another theme in African context, I think it's really important, um, it's Africans and the diaspora. So, you know, I'm an African, but I'm also British, so I'm of the diaspora, and people like me in the African context can also have certain privileges and um, certain powers which can often disturb and distort things on the continent. So, for example, I refer to the Oromo protests. They're an ethnic group, um, uh, the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, which is Africa's second largest continent, and it's the fastest-growing country, I think, in the world uh, last year. And uh, there are these protests uh, in the capital, Addis Ababa. I was there recently. And um, it's about, um, essentially, the expansion of the city. So Addis Ababa is going through these massive um, changes in terms of its infrastructure. Uh, they've built the first metro system in the continent, thanks in large part to the Chinese. But because there's been forced evictions, people have essentially had their land cleared, no compensation, the state effectively owns the, the, all the land, there have been these protests. And one of the things that's been really interesting to observe in, in the last several months as the protests have been happening is the ways in which diaspora has linked in with what was going on events in the country. So, for example, lots of the tweeting, lots of the social media buzz around the protests were in fact generated by people in Washington or London who may have a vested interest. You know, someone might think, oh, it's great for those people to want democracy in Africa. But as journalists, we have to be careful because there are festive interests um, e everywhere. So again, we can see the kind of um, relationship between people um, in the continent and those outside. One of the other ways in which there's been an impact of new media's an impact on journalism in the continent is the immediacy and variety. So previously... Um, if you didn't like a report or, you know, if you didn't like a particular journalist, you made, you know, letter writing saying that report by ex, for example, Western journalists is biased um, or awful. But today Africans can use social media, and I'll discuss some examples a bit later on, of how that's happened, to hold journalists to account. So, you know, people don't have to wait several weeks to hear back from somewhere. They can just go to Twitter and, you know, uh, start hashtagging, uh, take someone to task or to account. Um, but in the African context, what's worrying is, is the growing trend. That's where these backlashes are it, it, driven by governments' invested interests. So Rwanda is a good example. You know, um, Rwanda, which, by the way, Britain is very involved in and the Conservative Party has been very engaged in for many years, has increasingly been seen as a place where freedom is breached. It's been curtailed and threatened. And in fact, anybody who is a Rwandan, African, or indeed a Western journalist who dares to write anything critical about the government is basically hounded. And they're basically taken to task and threatened. And it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. These are driven by internal 
um, operations, I think, and I know from sources and people I've spoken to, within, um, the, within Rwanda. Um, and Ethiopia is another example. And I, I thought I'd give a fun example. So in the last few weeks, there was this Eritrean marriage hoax. Essentially, there were these reports coming out saying that someone in Eritrea, the government essentially had stipulated that every Eritrean man should take more than two wives. So essentially, state-sponsored polygamy. Uh, I mean, some men might welcome that, but um, it turned out that was, in fact, a hoax. I don't know where it's come from, um, so we don't know who put that out. I heard maybe it's people from Kenya, I have no idea. Um, but again, this is interesting because things become reality, unreality. Um, and it was picked up by mainstream media. So again, we see the ways in which new media can have the positive impact of allowing citizens and journalists to hold, for example, Western journalists to account, but also on the other side, what it can do is it, it can whip up this kind of sharing of information which isn't sourced, which isn't truth. So I promise I'll mention some examples, um, and here they start. So um, someone tell Mary Harper, someone tell CNN. I would have put a hashtag before, but I don't have a hashtag on my Mac, so apologies. Um, to I stand with the Galava. So... Uh, someone tell CNN was um, began in Kenya because um, the people felt in Kenya that CNN was not covering the elections in Kenya fairly and adequately, and it was basically um, you know peddling these old tropes of Africa that I was discussing. Um, and to someone tell Mary Harper, um, and that was uh, so I told a story about that. Um, um, so Mary Harper is the BBC Africa uh, um, editor at the BBC World Service, and uh, she's also an author. She's written a book on Somalia, and uh, she happens to be a friend as well, and a, a former colleague. Um, so she essentially wrote this very short piece about um, a book fair in Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia. Um, now, Mogadishu, most people, when they think about it, associated with violence and attacks and bombings. not a book fair. It's not something that people would say, oh, there's a wonderful literature festival. You must come to it in Mogadishu. <laughs> So it's unusual. Um, and so she wrote this piece, uh, which is very short, um, just basically saying, this is the book fair. Uh, isn't it wonderful that Somali uh, writers and you know, artists are coming together and saying no to Al-Shabaab and to this kind of terrorism? Um, and it was a positive piece. Um, but not known to her, the piece was taken up by somewhere within the BBC and went online. And they put a headline on it and they put a photo with it. Now, the photo that accompanied the piece was a photo of a bombing in Nukdishu. So it was the aftermath of an attack, I think, on the Jazeera Hotel in Nukdishu, which a lot of people died in. Now, I can maybe relate to that, uh, you know, if you're a picture editor, perhaps you want to, I don't know, maybe show contrast to the audience, so the audience can understand, you know, the kind of, uh, the dynamics of the context in Somalia. But nonetheless, maybe they should have picked a photo of a smiling kid of the book. I don't know. But nonetheless... Um, Mary didn't know about this, and often journalists, um, I know for me, when I write pieces, I, I don't often get to choose the headlines. I don't often get to choose the pictures that go with a piece that's done later on. But nonetheless, people felt that Mary Harper was responsible for portraying Somali in this light. And they started this hashtag which said, Someone tell Mary Harper. So it was comical to really serious to people saying, you know, why do we have these Western journalists, you know, coming to our continent and to our countries and making their careers and stealing from us and how dare they and it's the old colonial troop and it's the old way of looking at Africa and it's racist to actually becoming a storm which in the end 
um, became very nasty. So we see the way in which social media, particularly Twitter, can on one part, for example, legitimate kind of criticism of a journalist for you know, depicting a particular story in a certain way or uh, writing about such an issue in a certain way, to then becoming hysterical and to avalanche of kind of criticism and all kinds of things being read into it. So that someone told uh, Mary Harper hashtag was really fascinating because it ended up trending in Kenya um, and it ended up trending it elsewhere. And what was also really interesting of that trend, um, of the someone told Mary Harper hashtag, was that there was also actors behind the scenes driving this. So it wasn't just angry people in the continent. In fact, it was mostly angry Africans outside the continent who were shouting about uh, Mary Harper um, particularly reading their own contexts within where they are in the diaspora. So I can think of Oxford today and all the debates around Rose, for example. Um, to particular interests um, who were very critical of Mary's reporting of Africa uh, and Somalia in particular. So this could be, for example, the um, international military operation in Somalia, or even the UN. So it isn't just... Um, you know, journalists, it isn't just citizens in Africa, it is also vested interests that um, use social media as a way to whip up, also to, um, and, and discount journalists. Um, so, most of the countries that excel in terms of this um, are probably Kenya and Nigeria, so they have probably the most active uh, new media scene, and that's because they have a history of, uh, you know, vibrant media environments. I've already mentioned Burkina Faso, which is a Twitter arranged revolution, effectively. Other issues in regards to this is that one of the reasons why social media is increasingly important is because the sad truth is that African journalists sadly continue to need outsiders. And it's something popular not to say, perhaps, but it's the case, because there's training, resources, and so on. Um, another issue... Um, in relation to the consequence of um, new media and broadly threats facing journalists and content, the safety and impunity against journalists, um, and that really matters. So, for example, you know, I could travel, as I said, there to Ethiopia, but um, you know, someone from Ethiopia writing something critical about the government will, you know, would be arrested. You know, luckily I have a British passport, uh, so that gives me certain protection and privilege. Um, also, protection of the name that matters in African context. So. You know, BBC or CNN gives you that over local or radio or TV stations. So if you're a journalist working in the content, engaging in social media, or just reporting, you know, and you're from those kinds of places, it gives you protection over local journalists. And I think what I say is colonial hang-up. So another issue is that um, people on the continent in these countries, rather than deal with Western, you know, they rather deal with Western journalists than their own. Uh, and this hampers progress because it basically means... Uh, what you get is, um, you know, uh, leaders and opinion formers in Africa who'd rather be interviewed by uh, someone from the outside as opposed to someone from the inside, and that hampers progress. So I've started to pick apart some of the challenges, and, I, uh, and I'll just go on to discuss some of them. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is obviously impunity. I've discussed bribery and fear. Uh, and that this has become part of the law in many countries, such as Ethiopia, where anti-terror legislation are used against journalists. Um, the culture of respect for freedom of the press in decline, um, 
you know, journalists and state security often are in collusion in, in, in many places in Kenya. You know, journalists um, link up with the police. Um, so in some senses, the broad theme, I'd say, is that it's a difficult time for journalism in Africa. And the importance of the media is dwindling, um, not just in Africa, but in Europe too, you can say. And I put Freedom House there because I think it's really important when we discuss these things to be able to contextualise some of these kind of um, themes. And the statistics from Freedom House, which collects kind of um, um, basically like a league table of you know, how democratic countries are, uh, based in the US, um, says effectively in the 2000-2010, the gains that content had made in terms of going towards sort of democratic governance has in fact been in sharp decline. And that is related to the situation for the press and the state of journalism on the continent. They're directly linked. So it's very important to make those connections. Um, so if there's, you know, um, you know, there's, when crisis happens, there's, there's um, fighting and losing information battle. So when there's any hints of issues, what happens is that, you know, countries who can have the capacity shut down. So that was attempted in Burkina Faso. They tried to shut down the mobile um, uh, um, uh, system, which didn't quite work out. Um, and I think I mentioned the, the last point, so I'll move on. So fear and journalist uh, and the curse of self-censorship. Um, this, there is a climate um, which is increasing, which is the fear of being a journalist um, on the ground because of in, you know, intimidation, harassment and violence and impunity uh, against journalists and killings of journalists has been that people fear to report accurately and fairly and to report stories that what they know will get them attention for the wrong reason. And also, unfortunately, there's a direct relation to that, I think, which is of the curse of self-censorship. So a consequence of that is that people self-censor because they know, you know state authorities, those in power, won't look too kindly uh, upon their you know, journalism. So they just you know, don't report things they should report. But there is a fight back happening, and I won't really go into this, but one of the projects that's really interesting is AfriLeaks, um, um, which, um, unlike WikiLeaks, is more like a facilitator, but essentially it's trying to develop, using technology to develop tools and services online where people can safely, securely you know, share information that's of public interest. And there are a number of African news organisations uh, participating in the scheme. <coughs> so, at the beginning, I mentioned that the role of mobile technology is significant. And it's significant because, unlike other parts of the world, most Africans access the net uh, through their mobile phones and not by um, accessing it through a laptop or a desktop or an iPad and so on. So, uh, people in Africa use mobiles um, for online activity. Why? Because um, of the weak landline infrastructure in large parts of the continent and because it's just not there, the infrastructure is just not there, which has created a particularly unique path for the continent. This is what makes the story of broadly technology and new media in the last 20 years uh, very different in Africa. Uh, because the continent in effect missed out this whole stage of development that you saw in other parts of the world, where first you had the kind of telegrams, then you had the you know, landline revolution, then you had the ATMs, and then slowly you become you know, towards a sort of digital revolution. In Africa, you're just basically messing that out. Um, and you're moving straight to the mobile. Um, and 
because in recent years there's been a, a, a real decline in the cost of being able to own a handset um, and the um, use of data, that means that there's been a sharp increase in the uh, percentage and uh, population of people who have access to mobile phones and increasingly to smartphones. So I pick out some research that was done by Ericsson, uh, the Swedish uh, telecommunication giant, uh, and they say from their own research, and they're based all across the continent, uh, that 75% of mobile subscriptions in sub-Saharan Africa will be 3G and 4G by the end of 2019. So that's quite a remarkable turnaround. Um, and mobile phone data usage itself in Africa is growing 20 times between 2013 to 2019, which is twice the anticipated global growth. Uh, and the report also forecasts that uh, mobile phone subscriptions to rise to 930 million by 2019, um, which I think is from about 635 million in 2013. And it's estimated that three in four mobile subscriptions will be internet exclusive. So you can see significance of mobile tech in the African space. So, this massive growth is attributed to the rise of you know, social media, apps, and video media. Um, and one of the problems is in the last many years is that technology was always in the centre of the urban environment. So it was the middle class, it was the educated people. But you're seeing a shift of that. Um, and most people who are in rural areas do not have access to internet-based technologies. So in key markets such as South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, users increasingly access you know, media and, and video on smartphones are commonplace. Um, and Africa has, you know, has, uh, mobile has had a unique impact on Africa. Um, and as I said, it's because the connectivity and um, is, is not reliable or is not there and the electricity is not there. So essentially that means there's been a whole revolution in terms of what mobile can do. So you, know, you can pay um, um, all kinds of services on your mobile phone. I remember I was in um, the middle of basically the desert, I guess, in Somalia and I was talking to a, a guy who, who was, like, I, he's a nomad, I guess, and he, he's a herder, he has goats and camels and things. Um, and he had a smartphone, and he was surprised when I told him, he said, how do you pay for things in London? I said, I don't know, you know, you use a credit card, you use a card, you know, you pay with a cash. He's like, he started laughing at me, he said, really? Why, why can't you text, you know, to pay for a service? And he was surprised that why I'd bother with having to go walk to a cash machine, get cash out, and then go to find the particular service provider I was looking for and then pay them. So, again, that kind of reverts narratives and stereotypes that we think of the continent as being technologically not advanced. In fact, because of this whole gap that's missing, which is landlines, and because of the lack of infrastructure and connectivity, in fact, mobile is king not only in Africa, but it's led to indigenous innovation. So you've seen indigenous growth um, in Pasa. There are tons of examples where companies um, that are run, led, uh, and run for Africans have used the power of mobile to take it to places that we just don't have in the West because we don't need it. So, um, as I said, I think uh, according to Ericsson, 70% uh, of the users in the countries that reach out just browse the web on mobile phone devices as opposed to 6%. So, again, you know, you just see that contrast. Uh, and at the bottom, you can see countries where mobile subscription is particularly high. So, as I said, 
this mobile technological revolution is in many ways leading the way of indigenous innovation and how journalism can use that particular innovation I'll come to later. Uh, but nonetheless, there are variations in the access to mobile technology across the continent. And we've seen, you know, uh, for example, uh, Ethiopia, with 95 million population, has 25% access to mobile phones and 2.5% access to internet compared to 40% in Kenya. So, okay, I've picked Kenya as a particular case study because I think... Um, um, it, it relates to some of the themes because it has a very well-developed media environment historically. Um, but there's been a growing decline in uh, media uh, press readings in Kenya. And I said before how states are reacting to the power of the online world. And in Kenya, what they're doing is effectively they're using laws to try and silence journalists. Um, the most commonly used um, is improper use of licensed telecommunication gadget. That's what the Kenyan authorities say. So there's Eddie Rubin Illa, who's a blogger, who was arrested only a few weeks ago because he was basically charged with publishing prohibited material which showed images you know, of Kenyan soldiers killed by an Ashbab attack via a WhatsApp group. Uh, now, this is obviously contrary to official narratives of what's happening. So journalists are using social media to directly contradict state kind of propaganda and the consequences that journalists are being held. So Yasin Juma, who's a brilliant investigative journalist, uh, again has been arrested recently because his reports counter what the Kenyan scripture forces are saying. So it's not just state, it's also businesses getting on the act in terms of trying to silence journalists. So you see Cyprian Nayakundi, um, who's sued by Safaricom, which is one of the largest telecom companies in Africa. Uh, for publishing pieces critical of the company. If you read the stuff he's written online, it's not that bad. But anyway, he's facing an injunction which granted the company to force him to pull down material on his blog. Um, and at the bottom, I've mentioned the example of Julian Akola, who's a journalist with Kenya's own broadcasting corporation. She was basically grilled by the Kenyan Director of Criminal Investigations uh, for retweeting a tweet which was very innocent, which was about recruitment of security services. But this is not just the state, it's also, you know, publishing houses getting on the act. So I give the example of Nation Media Group, which is one of the largest sort of media groups in the continent. And recently there was one of its editors, Dennis Galava, um, which I mentioned before, because it's I stand with Galava hashtag, which is how people responded to his firing. And he was fired um, because of his criticism of the president of Kenya. The, you know, company says they didn't get rid of him because of his content, of his journalism, uh, but then later on they say, well, we got rid of him because he threatens profits. Uh, so this isn't just in Kenya. It's all across the continent, in Rwanda and Gambia. So nine bloggers are a good example. I, there were a group of bloggers that were arrested and held um, in Ethiopia that I interviewed recently, and they were essentially jailed and held under terror laws. So I'll come to the last couple of slides, and this is very much what's really interesting, is that increasingly there's... So mobile technology is indigenous... In, in led innovation. In terms of the web space, um, you're seeing a digital scramble for Africa. Um, so you can see Africa had 16% internet penetration and 67 million smart users in 2013. You see that it will rise to 50% by 2025 and 360 million smartphones uh, um, on the continent. And you see Facebook and uh, Google and other companies that are engaging on the act. And there are more examples of that. Uh, but one of the worries, of course, is that 
this is going to challenge indigenous-led growth. And, of course, it's not surprising why Facebook and Google are doing this, giving freebies, because it's locking in growth. Africa has the youngest and fastest-growing population in the world. Summary. Okay, so I've discussed how new media is a powerful tool, um, how it can be used to uh, advance journalism, but we mustn't forget the advantages of traditional media, which continue to matter. That's what I said. Twitter cannot replace good journalism. So you can tweet things, but you know it takes a journalist to go and verify sources, to interview people, and so on. Um, so we cannot replace that. Um, but going forward, um, Africa does, as it continues to go through this rapid process of change, urbanisation, uh, economic growth, and contain war and other kinds of social issues, Africa actually needs its journalists. But the problem is that the opportunities of new media have led to increasing censorship, and therefore this lack of freedom of the press. Um, the final point I think I would make from that slide is false choices. I, I wrote that because I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is um, if you look at Rwanda, if you look at Ethiopia, if you look anywhere um, that's developing rapidly in the continent, uh, you'll see leaders saying, well, if we want to develop economically, then can't journalists just idly sit by and not ask too, the wrong questions, not probe too much? Because that kind of um, um, strategy gets in the way of development, but it's a false choice between economic you know, um, progress and uh, freedom of speech. And there's a fantastic um, quote that I had from a blogger in Ethiopia who said to me, look, you know, this is a false choice. We need our freedom, especially so we can hold those uh, who steal our food to account. So again, this narrative that's been presented by African leaders is false. And the final thing I'd say um, before we have our discussion is really when we think about new media and the, the role in, in terms of Africa, one of the key things that's been really interesting about the African story is the role of mobile technology and how that particular technology, which has been indigenous-led, can be harnessed by journalists. I think it's particularly of uh, great interest and you know, I look forward to discussions um, uh, with you generally about my presentation. Right. So thank you for listening. I know. Yeah, thank you.